Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Episode 10, a conversation between Supreme Court expert Linda Greenhouse and series creator Aaron Tracy. I'm Aaron Tracy, the creator and writer of the nine-episode audio drama you just heard. For this 10th and final episode of the season, we're going to do something a little different. The scripted portion of the podcast is behind us. No more Maya Hawke or William H. Macy or any of the other extraordinary actors from the show. But in their place... For this bonus, Linda Greenhouse. Linda is undoubtedly one of the world's experts on the Supreme Court, and on Harry Blackman in particular. She covered the Supreme Court for three decades for the New York Times and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism for her coverage. A little detail I love, by the way, when Linda retired from the Times, seven of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices attended a goodbye party for her. Linda also wrote the book, Becoming Justice Blackman, which was hugely helpful to me in crafting the show. Linda is my colleague here at Yale, where I'm in the English department, and she teaches in the law school. She's about to join me here on campus, and I truly could not be more excited. So thanks for listening. Enjoy this bonus episode. All right. So, Linda, one of the things I was most interested in and that we deal with in the first few episodes of the show is that Harry never wanted to be on the court. His best friend, Warren Berger, seemed like the much more, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but seemed like the much more ambitious man, wanted to have his place in history, very much wanted to get to the Supreme Court. And Harry had to be led kicking and screaming a little bit. Is that true? Yeah, I wouldn't say so much kicking and screaming, but with great ambivalence. In a way, he kind of underestimated himself. He was very smart. He was a summa cum laude graduate of Harvard. So, you know, there was no moss growing on him intellectually, but his personality was very diffident. And he was happy living in Minneapolis and sitting on the Eighth Circuit and worked very hard. And one of the things I found in his files was when he got the offer, he took out a piece of notebook paper and he wrote the pros and the cons of 
taking it, and they were about equal. I wish I could cite off the top of my head what. Oh, well, I put I actually I think I can name a few because I put them in the show. Oh, okay, um, okay. The opening scene when we first meet Harry, played by William H Macy, is he's at a bar by himself waiting for Warren to show up, who's played by William Fickner, and Harry is jotting down that list of pros and cons. And so there are things like loss of contact with friends and family was a con. Potentially it hurting his relationship with Warren was a con. He didn't know how the friendship would survive if they were both in the court. That was very prescient. Another drink there, buddy? Hello? Buddy? Looks like you got a lot more cons than pros there. What? Your list on the cocktail napkin there. Here, let me see. Cons. Loss of contact with friends Come and family. Come on, please, don't Loneliness. read that. Okay, fine. What's the list for? I'm, I, I might be offered a job. This is just, this is how I chew things over. A job? In this economy? <laughs> whatever it is, buddy, I take it. Bartender, I'll have whatever my buddy's drinking. Keep them coming. <laughs> So what can you tell us about Sarah as a person? She seems like an unlikely figure to have been involved in the most controversial legal case of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, she didn't start out to be what she became. She was kind of recruited by a women's group in Austin where she was living who wanted advice on birth control, actually, which was, once again, a contested issue, but was a contested issue back then. And this group urged her to be part of a challenge to the Texas abortion law. The Texas abortion law was one of the very common laws that outlawed abortion except for circumstances when a woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. And she didn't really know what to do, but she and Linda Coffey had been classmates. I think Linda had been a much better law student and had clerked on the district court, federal district court in Texas, which was a big deal for a woman in those days. Yeah, there were two of only five women in their entire law school class. Yeah, it speaks well of Sarah that she got into law school at the University of Texas, which was and still is a very good law school. Yeah. But Linda was the one who was actually a practicing lawyer. And they became partners in this enterprise. But I should just say, there were cases like this popping up all over the country. The pipeline of courts all over the country were filling up with challenges to various abortion laws, one of which by that time actually has succeeded in California in state court, not in federal court. So there was a lot going on, and there was no particular reason at the beginning of this case to think that this was going to be the one. There were actually better cases, I hate to say that after all these years, but there was a case that was developed by Yale Law School female students and some Yale Law School professors, a case that came to be known as Women Against Connecticut on behalf of a thousand plaintiffs. The official name of the case is Abley against Markle. And that was in the pipeline and just missed out. Roe got there first. Interesting. Yeah. History's made up of so many contingencies and the story of abortion in America is certainly one of them. the case. Does it matter? It's a real case. Sarah, what is it? We're challenging the Texas abortion laws in federal court. 
don't <laughs> laugh at me, Linda. How often do people with our chromosomes get actual legal work in this state? I just wish someone had warned me before three years of law school that no one would ever hire me. Sarah, everyone warned you. And I know I'm not in the movement, okay? But this is a great opportunity to get some legal experience. I know it is. That's not why I laughed. I've been working on the same thing, Sarah. What are you talking about? I haven't gotten far. I have this day job, but I do have some research and a lot of ideas. I knew I came to the right person. Don't get excited. We're definitely going to lose. Who cares? I, I do have one question I'm hoping you can help me with right off the bat, though, Linda. What's that? What the hell do we do first? What can you tell us about Sarah and Linda as partners? The way I dramatized it, which is, of course, pulled from my research, is that they were a little bit similar to Warren and Harry in that they had very different strengths, very different personalities. It feels like Linda was fantastic with paperwork and with research. And as you said, she had clerked for a judge before, so she knew court procedure. Whereas Sarah was someone who could captivate. She was someone who could speak in front of a judge and really get their attention. Yeah, she was Miss Outside, and Linda was the inside heavy lifter of the work. It was certainly a functional partnership. It was unequal in some ways. Sarah and her post-row life was really out there swinging for the fences, out on the speaking circuit and lionized in feminist circles. And Linda really disappeared from history. Yeah. And in the show, the performances are extraordinary. Maya Hawke plays Sarah Weddington. Abigail Breslin plays Linda Coffey. They're both just so incredibly great at capturing those different sorts of personalities that the two had. I want to talk a little bit about what the actual work was because I'm a huge fan of courtroom dramas. Most of my favorite movies, in fact, are courtroom dramas. But setting a show in the Supreme Court is very different. In a courtroom drama, you get witnesses and you get cross-examinations and you get interplay among the lawyers and the judge and a Supreme Court drama, by necessity, is very different. So in the show, we certainly recreated some of it, where Sarah and her opposition are giving their oral arguments, and I decided to cut back and forth between them, and the justices are reading questions on them. But can you tell us a little bit about the differences between what goes on in the Supreme Court and what goes on in a normal court of law? So I'll talk about the Supreme Court as it was, not the Supreme Court as it is, I have to say, post-pandemic. Arguments that the court have become really wild and woolly, and they're not like they were. By which I mean, in the pre-pandemic days, a Supreme Court argument lasted for an hour, a half hour per side, and the one who went first, known as the petitioner, or in the case of Roe, as the appellant, would save five minutes at the end for a rebuttal. And it was very scripted in that way. And when your red light went on that meant your 30 minutes were up, you stopped talking or the chief justice was going to say, counsel, your time has expired. So there was not in real life, you know, kind of back and forth, but there was a lot of questioning and justices could jump in at any time. And that's still the case, of course, and just try to ask hypothetical questions, the purpose being the court knows. Now, Roe might have been a little different because the court knew it was embarking into kind of unknown territory. But in the typical case, the court 
doesn't view itself as resolving a particular dispute, but really as the lawgiver for the for the whole system. So they don't just want to know what to do with you. They want to know if we do what you want us to do with you, what are the implications for the next case? Where does this go? What road should we go down that you're offering us? What road had we better avoid? Or we're going to open up a whole hornet's nest of new legal problems. And that's the reason for the questioning, really. Yeah. And I went to visit the Supreme Court as research for writing the show. And one of the things that struck me the most was when you are standing at the advocate's lectern and you reach out your hand, if the chief justice leaned down and reached out his hand, you could shake. That's how close you are to the bench. And for Sarah, at 26 years old, never having taken on a contested case before, it must have been absolutely terrifying for her to stand at the lectern with Thurgood Marshall raining down questions and Warren Berger and Harry Blackman. That must have just been so overwhelming. Well, yeah. In fact, Ruth Ginsburg, who had many arguments before the Supreme Court when she was a civil rights advocate before she became a judge, talked about how intimidating it was and how nervous she was. And if she had an afternoon argument, she never had lunch. Oh, really? Yes. I think it's it's a very scary thing. There's yeah. a good new book out, actually, people might like to know about. It's called In the Chamber of the Appellate Gods. And it's by a woman who had her one Supreme Court argument, which turned out to be a big criminal case, a case called Apprendi. And she writes about, it's almost like kind of diary entries of her preparation and her terror of getting up there representing the state of New Jersey. She was a state lawyer. So yeah, there's nobody who can take it casually. And it must have been all the more disconcerting for Sarah. I think you write about in your book about Blackman, somewhere I read it, that Sarah, before argument, was looking for the restroom. But of course, there was no women's restroom in the lawyer's lounge. And so she had to go all the way down to the basement. There were so few women who worked at the Supreme Court. And I'm sure that frazzled her a little bit too. Yeah, and as you said, with the potential handshaking between the advocate and the chief justice, it's a grand chamber, but it's very intimate. I mean, it holds about maybe 400 people, which is not small, but the kind of way it's arranged, there's an intimacy to it, much more so than people would expect, I think. Yeah, totally. The entire courthouse is so interesting. Each justice's chambers are much smaller than I would have imagined. There are all sorts of very old-fashioned parts to it. There's a spiral staircase in the back where I set a scene, and uh, the main hallway is so grand with busts of all the former justices. It can be an intimidating place. I once tagged along, when I was a reporter at the court, I tagged along on a public tour just to see what the public was told, but we were taken up into the chamber, uh, which has, as you saw, long red velvet curtains, ceiling to floor, curtains. And the tour guide said, now on these curtains are the longest zippers in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember hearing that and thinking, so you say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't know how anybody can prove that. That is a very interesting fact to brag about. That does remind me that there's one very strange setting where I said a couple scenes. There's a robing room right? Backstage reminds me of the dugout before players take the field in a baseball game. This is where justices, as I say this, it almost feels like it can't be true, but justices have sort of lockers and they put on their robes back there before going out into court. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I assume <laughs> they have clothes under their robes, but, but yes. But And are they just chatting back there about what's about to happen? I mean, it feels so, I don't know, just, something about it feels so much like a sport, 
rather than these distinguished justices that we're used to imagining? I don't actually think they're chatting. If they're chatting, it's not about the cases they're about to hear. I think that's the norm at the court, that they don't chat in advance. They do their homework in advance. The Supreme Court's what is known as a hot bench, and that doesn't mean what it sounds like. It doesn't mean they're yelling and screaming and throwing things. A hot bench means they come unprepared. They've done their homework. As opposed to, there are courts where the notion is, we're not going to do anything in advance. Let's just see how the argument goes and how the argument strikes us. They don't schmooze about it in real time. So tell me about the relationship between Harry and Warren, because I'm completely fascinated by it. One of the things that first made me want to write the show was when I realized that the author of Roe v. Wade on the court was Harry Blackman, whose best friend, his lifelong best friend, was the chief justice. Right. So they grew up together in St. Paul. They came from quite different backgrounds and had quite different trajectories as young people. Harry's family had very little money, but they had some. And he goes off to Harvard on a Harvard Club of Minneapolis scholarship. And that was a real kind of bursting out of the rather narrow circumstances of his childhood. And Berger didn't have that leap to make. Harry always loved medicine, and he actually wanted to go to medical school. But that would have required staying longer as an undergrad and taking some of the requisite science courses that he hadn't taken. And so law was really his kind of second choice. But once he made that choice— And he had a nice clerkship, not in the Supreme Court, but lower federal court clerkship and a good law practice. And that's what he was devoting himself to. Right. Berger decided to make his way in Republican politics. And, of course, Republican politics in Minnesota are not the Republican politics that we see today. But he was certainly on the conservative side. Nonetheless, he ingratiated himself to Dwight Eisenhower at the Republican National Convention in 1952, when Eisenhower had a serious opponent for the nomination, Taft, and Berger was quite influential in throwing the convention to Eisenhower, and he got his reward, which was to come to Washington and get a significant job in the Justice Department as an assistant attorney general. And, you know, then he was off and running, and he got a seat on the D.C. Circuit, often called, I think, with reason, the second most important federal court in the country, second only to the Supreme Court. And he almost immediately started lobbying to get on the Supreme Court. He went around the country giving speeches, very conservative law and order type of speeches. And things broke his way and Richard Nixon got elected. And Earl Warren retired. Nixon had a vacancy to fill for chief justice. And there was Warren Berger with his hand up and was a very attractive candidate from Nixon's point of view. So that was his story. And then when he was on the court, a vacancy opened up and Nixon's first two nominees to fill that vacancy both fell in the Senate. And so Nixon was desperate to find someone, I guess, you tell me if I'm wrong, but to find someone uncontroversial who could fill that third seat. And Warren whispered to his buddy Nixon, my best friend from childhood is your guy. And Blackman was totally uncontroversial in that he was totally unknown. Not on anybody's screen, didn't push any of the hot buttons that Hainsworth and Carswell, the defeated nominees, had encountered opposition from the Democratic-controlled Congress. 
So, yeah, why not Harry Blackman? Right. It's such a great irony and so great for the drama that Harry Blackman was brought onto the court because he was incredibly uncontroversial that he might actually get through and, of course, ended up being one of the most controversial justices of all time because he authored the decision in Roe v. Wade. There's so many ironies because, of course, Roe wasn't Harry Blackman alone. It was a seven to two decision. If you ask most people just walking down the street who think they know anything about the Supreme Court, what was the vote in Roe against Wade? I guarantee they would say five to four. Mm, right. But it was seven to two, including three of Nixon's four appointees, including Warren Berger, who's the one who assigned Blackman to this task. Although Blackman forever in history will be known as the justice who wrote Roe against Wade. It was a collective effort and everybody else kind of skated free and he's the one who got stuck with it. Right. Yeah. And let's talk about that for a second because I make a meal out of that in the final few episodes as Blackman is trying to win votes to his side. First, why did Warren Berger assign the decision of Roe v. Wade to Blackman? He had never written a major decision before. Why give him the abortion controversy for his first thing? It's a mystery that's never been quite explained, but I think we have to understand the context, and the context is a little bit counterintuitive. The court had an awful lot on its plate, and abortion was not the hot issue that it then became after the careful cultivation by the Republican Party to turn it into the culture war issue of our time. It was not that, actually. There was a fairly wide consensus in the country, everybody except the bishops, that it was time to modernize the era of the criminalization of abortion. So the court knew it was a bit of a hot potato, but they had a lot of hot potatoes in those days, largely with criminal law, with the civil rights cases, religion, prayer in schools, a lot of stuff was going on. You know, everybody gets their share of opinions at the court. The way the court works is it sits in two-week argument sessions scattered throughout the term, and every justice is supposed to get roughly the same number of opinion assignments for every one of the two-week sittings. And so I never went back to see who had the other opinions in the first time Roe was Mm -hmm. argued, which was in early 1972. Yeah. Let me just take a quick aside there. So Roe v. Wade was argued twice, one year apart. And the first time it was argued, there were only seven sitting justices. And then they decided that this was too important a decision to be decided by a small court. And so Sarah had to go back the following year and argue it all over again when there were nine justices. And that's one of those examples of, for dramatic effect, I just decided to conflate the two. It would just be too confusing to have two separate trials in the show. So I conflated them. But for the most part, the Supreme Court case that we hear in the show is that second argument. And the fact that there are two arguments tells us something. And here's what it tells us. Justice Harlan and Justice Black abruptly retired at the beginning of the 1971 term, leaving, as you just said, seven justices, and they had a bunch of cases scheduled for argument. So what to do? And they set up a little committee, and I never quite could get— this is from Blackman's notes. I never could quite get the full membership of it, but I think Blackman was on it, Potter Stewart was on it, to decide which of the cases were so important that they should be held 
for mm. the two vacancies to be filled by President Nixon, and which were the more ordinary cases that they could just go ahead and argue with seven justices. And Roe versus Wade fell in the second category. They went ahead and argued it because they didn't think it was so important that they needed to wait for nine justices. That tells us that yeah. the way we understand the context of Roe today is not actually the way it was. That's so interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the relationship between Harry and Warren. One of the things that I found so dramatically interesting is what opposites they were in personality, seemingly. They were paralleled a little bit in our show by Sarah and Linda, who are also very much opposites in personality, while Sarah is the sort of outgoing beauty queen who is the president of the Homemakers Association of America in college and always wore these pastel dresses. Linda was the exact opposite of that. With Harry and Warren, how were their personalities different? So Warren Berger was very needy. One of the most fascinating things about getting into the Blackman papers was the extensive correspondence between the two of them. Blackman saved not only all of Berger's incoming but he would answer with typewritten letters on carbon paper. If listeners today even ever saw a sheet of carbon paper, right. I'm not sure that my daughter ever has, for instance. But so he kept copies of all the outgoings. So we have in his papers the complete correspondence. And Berger, he was always complaining about the circumstances of his life and his frustrations and his need for companionship. He would write, these letters were before they were on the court, so they were separated by half a country. He was in Washington, Blackman was back in Minnesota. Harry, why don't the two of us just run away together? Why don't we go to Europe? All you have to do is pack your pajamas. I was reading this stuff, and it's almost a little homoerotic. I don't mean to be projecting, and certainly whatever was going on with Berger was very deeply buried in him. But we see this need. Blackman is, my senses would receive these letters— with a little bit of puzzlement, some empathy, some kind of annoyance, I mm -hmm. think. Like, Warren, I don't need to hear this today. I'm a busy man. You could see just from the correspondence, Blackman was quite very interdirected. You know, he had a, I think, good relationship with Dottie, his wife, yeah. and raising three daughters. And I think Berger's home life was not terrifically stable I don't want to say more than I know, but he had a daughter, Mary Margaret, who had some kind of chronic and long-lasting emotional, intellectual, I'm not sure, disability. And that was a great worry to him. So they were, you know, kind of on different planets yeah. in dealing with the sort of agonies of midlife, you might say. Interesting. Yeah, so we never go home with Warren in my show, but we do go home with Harry. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Harry seems to be someone who was just surrounded by women. As you said, he had three daughters, no sons. He had a wife, Dottie, who's played by William H. Macy's real-life wife, Felicity Huffman, in the show. And they seem to be very close and had a good marriage. So Tell us a little bit about what Harry's relationship was actually like with his wife and daughter. They had certain uh, routines. And for many years, Harry was involved with the Aspen Institute in Aspen, Colorado. They would spend the summer there. And they would drive across the country. And as they drove, Dottie would be reading out loud to him the new petitions that had come into the court so that he could keep up with his work while he'd be driving his little VW Beetle. They really were partners, I think. She was an interesting woman. Before she had 
children. She had an interesting career. She was a dress designer and had her own dress shop. Right. She was a woman of her time and didn't pursue that when she started having babies. You know, she was a person with outside interests, and I think they they did have a very very warm and mutually supportive relationship. Yeah, and I'll say that really does mirror what I briefly saw in production with Bill Macy and Felicity Huffman. They recorded together, and they were adorable together. <laughs> they were constantly making jokes with each other. It was actually really sweet to see. So Harry's three daughters, Nancy, Susan, and Sally. Can you tell us anything about them? A couple of them very much walked in their father's shoes into the practice of law. Susie, I think, was a bit of a hippie. Sally is uh, someone who plays a little bit of a larger part in the show because of something I think I learned in your book, which is that she got pregnant when she was in college and she was forced to, or she decided to drop out of school and marry her college boyfriend. And eventually the pregnancy was miscarried. It's very similar to something we'll talk about in a second that happened to Sarah, whereas Sarah, when she got pregnant, chose to go to Mexico and get an illegal abortion. Harry's daughter did not. And I always wondered how that might have weighed on Harry, what kind of discussions they might have had behind the scenes. Well, again, I never like to say more than I know, but I'm sure that was a family trauma because she is very smart and, you know, obviously designed for a college and probably professional education. Right. She went on and became a lawyer and had a quite substantial legal career. Yeah. There's nothing I read that indicated that the subject of abortion ever came up. Right. Although we know statistically in the years before Roe, there were maybe a million illegal abortions a year in the country. So all classes of people more easily obtained by middle-class people through networks and hospital committees and this kind of thing. She probably could have yeah. arranged, the family probably could have arranged for her right. to have even a legal abortion. I mean, there were right. you know ways of satisfying various requirements and so on, but I'm not sure it ever came up. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but that's a conversation that I have way after the fact between Susan and her father in the show. And Susan, by the way, is played by... William H. Macy and Felicity Huffman's real-life daughter, Sophia, which was really fun. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Aaron, you asked me where the idea for my book came from. Where did your idea for the show come from? I think I first learned about Sarah Weddington, I want to say when I was here in grad school, so a million years ago. And the thing that first caught my eye was the idea that this was the youngest person in history to win a case in the Supreme Court. And not only was she the youngest person, she was the youngest woman to ever argue a case there. And not only was she the youngest woman ever to argue a case there, but she had never had a contested case before. She had only done wills and adoptions. She had never spoken in front of a judge. She had never been in a courtroom. And that's what really got me excited, this sort of underdog Aaron Brockovich type story. Adding to that, it happened to be the most explosive case of the 20th century. I could not believe that nobody else had told this story yet. I thought it was such a fascinating story. And as I did research, reading books like yours, Becoming Justice Blackman, I got very excited about Harry's journey on a parallel path to Sarah's and about the abortion fight in general, which of course has so many dramatic twists and turns. What she talks about in her book, this wasn't just a professional cause for her. This wasn't just a way for her to get to practice law, although that was part of it when no one else would give her a case. This was a case that was handed to her, but she went down to Mexico and had her own illegal abortion and really wanted to prevent other people from having to go through that trauma. And then something I learned from your book that Harry Blackman, who was a man who was a jurist and a lawyer for many years and didn't seem to have any obvious connections to the abortion movement, had a daughter who dropped out of school a sophomore year when she got pregnant and had to marry her college boyfriend. And that pregnancy eventually ended in a miscarriage. But I was very interested in imagining what that might have been like behind the scenes between Harry and his daughter. Did he suggest she should have an abortion? Did that subject ever come up? And then last, the relationship between Harry and Warren, which you talk about so beautifully in your book, that they were lifelong best friends 
best men at each other's weddings, camp counselors together. And now I'm very close with my childhood best friends. And just imagining the two of them having gone from little kids together, the Minnesota twins, Harry's mom would call them, to now being two of the most powerful people in the country. I just, it all felt like such ripe stories for drama. I absolutely loved it. Shifting gears a little bit, I would love to to talk a little bit about Sarah and Linda. The show is very much about Sarah on a parallel track to Harry. Sarah and Harry were both sort of amateurs. Sarah, to a much greater degree, had never argued a case before. She'd never stood before a judge, literally never had a contested case. She had just done a couple adoptions and wills. And now she's taking her first ever case all the way to the Supreme Court. Harry has a distinguished history as a judge and a lawyer for the Mayo Clinic, but he was fairly new to the Supreme Court. He had never written a major decision for the court before. And so I loved the idea of these two figures on parallel tracks, untested and maybe a little bit scared. So can you talk a little bit about the brief for Roe v. Wade? A big part of one episode is Sarah and Ron and then eventually Linda coming. They move to the Women's Institute in Gramercy in New York. It's an Irving place around 17th Street. The building is still there. I walk by it all the time. And the Women's Institute offered them space and interns to help them write the brief in the summer before the Supreme Court. So can you tell us a little bit about what a Supreme Court brief is? What sort of goes into it? So the idea of a Supreme Court brief is to present the argument in the most effective ways. It has an introduction. It has a summary of argument. And then you want to say how the argument you're making is the logical extension of the court's body of work that's come before of the precedents. And the idea in Roe was to show how it grew naturally out of a case that had been decided less than 10 years before, Griswold against Connecticut, which in 1965, the court found there was a constitutional right for married couples to use birth control. Now, this is in my lifetime. It's kind of astonishing that, you know, in the lifetime of people who are walking around today and who still can get themselves out of bed, that birth control is illegal in the state of Connecticut, which is where we're now having to be recording this episode. So Griswold against Connecticut recognized a right to privacy growing out of the due process guarantee in the 14th Amendment and had other stuff in it too, of course. So the idea was to say to the court, this is what you said not too many years ago, and here's the logical consequence. If you can have birth control because you don't want to bear a child. You have the right not to bear a child as guaranteed by the Constitution. So that was the effort. And the kind of backstory of the brief is that it was based on a law review article that had appeared not too long before in the law journal of the University of North Carolina by a young guy named Roy Lucas. And it gotten a fair amount of play. And Roy Lucas had drafted part of the brief, and there was a good deal of tension between him and Sarah and Linda as to who was going to get to argue. And Roy Lucas, whom I knew, never let go of his anger that he had not been the one who argued. Let's talk about this, because this is part of the show. Also, Roy is played by Luke Kirby in our show, who's Lenny Bruce in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, just a fantastic actor. And he was a major player, if not the major player, in abortion cases in the country at the time. And so what Sarah writes in her book is that Roy tried to steal the case away 
by writing a letter to the Supreme Court saying that he would be the one arguing the case. What are your sort of thoughts on that? Well, I mean, he was deeply invested and he had done the work. And like a lot of creators, you launch something in the world and you lose control of it. So he got back into the game later. He had other abortion cases that he argued before the Supreme Court, but he missed the big one Yeah, and was very bitter. And I think his bitterness about it overshadowed the rest of his life. Yeah. So going back to the Supreme Court, once it's time for Harry to assemble a majority, as you said, he got a seven to two majority in the case, including Warren Burger's vote. How does the justice go about assembling a majority? I know it's very important to Harry that this case be as close to unanimous as possible. How do you go about doing it? Well, you've got to write a draft. And what happens is you get the assignment and it then falls to you to write a draft, which you then circulate. And the court has an odd locution. One justice will say, you have my join. Join is usually a verb in the English language, but the Supreme Court locution It's a noun. You have my join. That means I'm going to sign your opinion. You've got me. Or can say, you know, I'm with you part of the way, but I really am not comfortable with section X, and I'd like to see that revised in such and such a way, and that kind of thing. The burden is on the justice who got the assignment, and it's a burden that sometimes that justice can't carry. What's known as you can lose the court when you don't get five votes. So that was part of the challenge for Harry. Yeah. Harry took the sort of unusual step, is my understanding, and read his final decision alone from the bench to a room full of reporters. And that's dramatized in the show with Katie Couric playing one of the reporters talking about it outside the courthouse. Any idea why Harry chose to do this, to read the decision from the bench? Oh, I'll give you a bit of historical context and correction. Yeah, please. It was, and we'll see if that is going to continue in the post-pandemic world. We don't know yet. Very common, I mean, expected for the justice who has the majority opinion to announce from the bench a summary of it. And that's called the hand down. It's handed down from the bench orally to the public. Now, who's the public? There's maybe 200 tourists or whatever sitting in the courtroom, and then there's a couple rows of press seats. Nobody knows when an opinion's coming down. So Roe came down in January. It wasn't one of these, let's hold our breath for June, like with the Dobbs opinion that overturned Roe. So it just happened to come down in January. But what Harry did that was a little bit unusual was he wrote his hand down, not the full opinion. He wrote his hand down, which is just a few pages. And he circulated it in advance to the justices in the majority to get their feedback. And Berger came back and said, I think you should say we are not authorizing abortion on demand. Wow. And I saw in Blackman's papers his draft of the hand down and Berger's response. And Blackman did not say that in his oral mm. announcement. And that was clue as to where Berger was heading because what does abortion on demand mean? What does that phrase mean? We hear it. We don't hear about, I want an appendectomy on demand. I want a nose job on demand. What does it mean to say abortion on demand? It actually is a perversion of a feminist slogan. Before Roe, women were marching under banners that said, we demand free 
24-hour child care and free abortions. That means we want the right to become mothers and stay in the workplace. We want child care. Or on the other hand, we want the right not to become mothers if we don't want to become mothers. It was a two-part thing. But the anti-abortion crowd picked up the abortion on demand as a standalone and a kind of an ugly phrase that made women who were seeking to change the abortion laws sounded very unappealing. Demanding anything sounds unappealing. What they were demanding was a constitutional right. So for Berger to reflect that perversion of the language that I just described, I think tells us that although Harry had his join, that Berger was not going to be reliable. Interesting. And just to give a little bit more context, the previous court from the Berger court, the Warren court, they were known for expanding rights with Gideon and Miranda and Brown v. Board. Now with the Berger court that had, as you said, three Nixon appointees, at least three. Four. Four. What was the thinking? Would the expansion of rights continue? Or I assume the thinking was the expansion of rights would end, if not the restriction of rights. I don't think they woke up in the morning and said, <laughs> okay, we're going to spend the next 20 years of our life restricting rights. But You don't think the current court's doing that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think with the Nixon appointees to the Berger court, they reflected Nixon ran against the Warren court in his 1968 presidential campaign. He had all kinds of dog whistles, law and order, crime. Those were dog whistles for race. By 1968, you couldn't quite put yourself in the you know segregation side of the street. So you used crime much as being used today. Very few things that are all that new under the sun. But yeah, the Nixon appointees on the court certainly thought the Warren court had gone too far and needed the court needed to be reeled back, which makes Roe stand as a kind of anomaly against some of the other things that happened during the Berger years. But in context, they didn't think they were advancing a feminist cause, for instance. Right. They didn't think of abortion as a cause. They actually thought of abortion as it is, which is a medical procedure, full stop. And they were responding to not the calls of women on the streets. They couldn't hear those. They could, that didn't compute with them. They were responding to the fact that the American Medical Association, the American Public Health Association, the American Law Institute, which is an organization of very elite lawyers and judges and professors, all were calling for decriminalization of abortion. The overturning of Roe v. Wade came when I was near the end of writing the audio series. That's why I added the ending with Katie Couric that we heard where she talks about how dangerous a political court is, a politicized court. I'm curious where you think Roe and the abortion fight goes from here. It goes into electoral politics. I think we saw in the midterms in November where it goes, and it stopped the predicted red wave. It led to Democratic governors and state legislatures being elected on the abortion issue. So it opened up a new framework for uh, keeping this issue alive, and it will be kept alive. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles 
ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. So you must have taken a fair amount of creative license in the show. So I tried to keep it as true to the historical record as I possibly could. The way I think about it a little bit is the way some of my heroes have talked about the way they adapt true stories. Aaron Sorkin, for instance, who wrote The Social Network and Steve Jobs and the recent Lucille Ball movie. He talks about when he takes a true story and dramatizes it, he thinks of it as a painting rather than a photograph. He's going to have his own interpretation, his own point of view, but it's still the story. David Mamet talks about how his job is not to document, his job is to persuade. And so I tried to do something similar. Just the fact that this show takes place over nine episodes instead of over four years means that I had to take some creative license. The only characters who are completely invented, I should say, are composites, are Andrea Savage's character, Deb Margulies, and Laura Benanti's character, B. Cutress. Those are composites. And then when Sarah and Harry speak on the phone, I really wanted a moment where these two characters, whose journeys we've been following on parallel tracks for so long, finally come together. And of course, they do come together in the Supreme Court when Harry is raining questions down on her. But that didn't really give me the sort of intimate moment that I wanted. So I took a page from Peter Morgan's script that Ron Howard directed, Frost Nixon, where Nixon has a middle-of-the-night drunken phone call with Frost. And that never happened. That was completely invented by Peter Morgan. So similarly, I have Sarah desperate to find out when the decision is finally going to come down and she can go on with her life. And so she calls the court to try to get any intel she can from whatever clerk answers the phone. And on this particular night when she calls, Harry is busy working on the decision 
and he answers the phone. And so he never reveals himself. So it's the kind of scene that could have happened, although it never did. And they have a very human conversation about fathers and daughters. They're sort of a spiritual father and daughter dynamic. Harry talks about his daughters and Sarah talks about her father, who's so brilliantly played by Josh Hamilton in the show. Pretty cool. This bonus episode of Supreme, The Battle for Roe, is hosted by me, Aaron Tracy. It's edited by Carl Cadle, music by Anna Stumpf and Hamilton Lighthouser. A big thank you to the Yale Broadcast Studio and to Linda Greenhouse for offering her time and expertise. Supreme, The Battle for Roe, is a nine-part audio drama about the legal minds behind the historic Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade. Listen on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.